Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. So good evening. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that when we meet at the University of Sydney, we meet on ancestral lands of Indigenous Australians. For thousands of years, Indigenous Australians have exchanged knowledge and ideas right here in languages such as Darug, spoken from here to the west, and Eora, spoken from here to the east. My name's Nick Enfield. I'm head of the Post-Truth Initiative and the director of SHARC, the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre at the University of Sydney. And I'm particularly pleased that both SHARC and the Post-Truth Initiative have been able to support Frank Pasquale's visit to the University of Sydney, both for this event his talk on the promise and threat of algorithms, and for other events taking place this week. Shark here has two closely related missions. One is to advance landmark research at the University of Sydney in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences with an emphasis on interdisciplinary collaboration. The second is to promote our global engagement and impact. So needless to say, we're very pleased to have made it possible for a scholar of Frank Pasquale's calibre and eminence to take part in a research collaboration here. The Post-Truth Initiative looks at issues such as fake news, alternative facts, lies, bullshit and propaganda from a wide range of disciplinary perspectives, from philosophy to political science to linguistics to communications to environmental science to cancer research to research on biases in scientific funding and publishing. Algorithms are never far from these issues. I'm particularly interested in the problem of accountability myself, and I'm fascinated by Frank Pasquale's reference to that concept in his critique of non-human agency. What does it mean if algorithms can make decisions while having no skin in the game? That is, unlike people. So I'm very much looking forward to Professor Pasquale's talk this evening. To introduce him, let me hand over to Benedetta Bravini from the Department of Media and Communications. So, really good evening, friends, colleagues, and uh, students. I can see students coming, so I'm very pleased. Um, my name is Benedetta Bravini, and I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Media and Communication. Um, news broke uh, in March this year that between 2013 and 2015, Cambridge Analytica, a data analytics firm that worked with Donald Trump's election, had extracted Facebook data for about 87 million um, user accounts. And these data were used to build a massive targeted marketing database. Cambridge Analytica boasted frequently of having created psychographic profiles using five personalities famous personality traits, so the big five, also known as ocean, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And the same model was used by the University of Cambridge, as we know. And so it began offering its profiling system to an array of political organizations. The question of whether ocean made a difference in the US campaign, presidential election, remains unanswered, although, I don't think that Steve Bannon would probably find a job and would be employed to build the far right now um, ahead the European election if data analytics didn't have any meaning or any power for prediction. But there is more. In 2019, the OECD plans to launch its international study on social emotional learning. Designed as a computer questionnaire, the test is modified, guess what, again, on a different version of Ocean. Again, the big five inventory. When implemented, the social and emotional skills test will assess students against the big five categories. And the assumption behind this test is that social and emotional skills are important predictors of educational progress. So large-scale personality data are presumed by the OECD to be predictive of a country potential social and economic progress. These are just two examples of human activities that have been impacted and influenced by big data predictions. 
But it is difficult to think of an aspect of public life that has not been affected by the use of algorithms, automation, big data, including medicine, media, voting, law enforcement, terrorism prevention, and cybersecurity. The problem is that these automated judgments may be biased, inaccurate, misleading, and to borrow Oscar Gandhi's words, they can contribute to a community of disadvantage that weighs down, that isolates, excludes, and ultimately widens the gaps between those at the tops and nearly everyone else, without any consideration for the historical, social, political, and economic factors that generated the data in the first place. So as tonight's guest explained in his book, The Black Box Society, critical decisions are made not on the basis of the data per se, but on the basis of data analyzed algorithmically. This is why algorithms become so relevant, yet they often remain in the hands of private companies, inaccessible to researchers or to the broader public. So I couldn't be happier tonight to welcome Professor Frank Pasquale from the University of Maryland. He's the author of The Black Box Society, and which is a bold new account, a political economy account, I must say, of hidden algorithms that drive decisions at major Silicon Valley and Wall Street companies. Frank's research focuses on the challenges posed to information law by rapidly changing technology. And he has testified before the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives in the US, appearing with the general counsels of Google, Microsoft, Yahoo. He's been visiting professor at Princeton Center for Information Technology and visiting professor at Yale Law School and Cardozo Law School. Frank will be speaking for about 45 to 50 minutes. Then I will open the Q&A and the keynote will be available on podcast after the lecture. So please join me in welcoming Frank Pasquale. Well, thank you so much, Nick and Bene, for those really generous introductions. It's a great honor to be here. Um, I've been following research from the University of Sydney for quite some time, and it's just a thrill to get a chance to be part of the Ideas Festival and to sort of to talk about these issues, which I've been following for you know over a decade, and which suddenly seem to be on everyone's minds uh, around the world, which I'm just thrilled by. So to begin the talk tonight, I'm going to focus first on the promise of algorithms and then get to the threat, right? Because I think what's important in recognizing some of the problems that Bennett discussed in her introduction that I think we're all familiar with um, with respect to the robo-debt scandal, the My Health Record scandal, other uh, scandals that have uh, recently rocked uh, the headlines here and similar ones abroad in Europe and the US. Um, we focus a lot on the problems, but I think to get at the heart of why the algorithmic turn is so compelling to so many policymakers, so many CEOs, we have to talk about the promise. So I'm going to go over that for about the first third of the talk, then go into a critique, and then finally talk about what are some concepts of algorithmic accountability that can lead us to a better way of implementing these things. Because if there's one thing I hope everyone takes home from the talk today, it's that the choice to use data and algorithms is not all or nothing. If there's a problem and someone says, well, you know, we could fix your problem, but then we'd have to scrap the whole thing. Be very skeptical, because very often the key, not merely to privacy and to human dignity and to due process, is public input, but also that's the key to scientific validity and accuracy in many areas. So let's begin. We can start in thinking about the promise and promises of computerized law and governance with things like Centrelink's RoboDebt scheme, um, and some similar initiatives in the US. Um, I used the Indiana State Department of Health as an example for today. And the reason why you have something like Centerlink trying to automate the determination of overpayment of benefits is, is not just an efficiency rationale, it's also a rationale where those who are in charge of benefit systems believe that every dollar that is spent on administration is a dollar that doesn't go to the program, right? And so if you have this sort of view, you want to think, how do we make things as efficient as possible? There's also demand often on the claimant's side to say, we're sick of dealing with uncaring or unfeeling bureaucrats, 
right? We want to deal with just a streamlined computerized system. And I know that that was not necessarily part of the public consultation for that program, but certainly in many instances, there's a desire to interact with a computer instead of a person. Um, in some head uh, studies in the US, over 50% of workers said that they'd rather deal with a robot than their boss. And, and I think that certainly highlights some problems that need to be taken on by the School of Management, business schools, others. Um, but I think it also highlights uh, a way in which many of us are, and especially I think uh, the younger generation are getting more and more akin, accustomed to, and even enjoying the interaction with the computer as opposed to other human beings. It's seamless, it's frictionless, et cetera. And that also was the promise behind some state uh, programs in the United States with respect to streamlining benefits, streamlining uh, either your access to benefits or at the very least, trying to make them computationally tractable so that instead of going to an office, you just do it all online. Okay? Um, there's also the example in the private sector of what I call Uber's private computational governance. Right? And these are examples of how Uber interacts with its drivers. Rather than saying to someone, you need to work nine to five, out on the streets, uh, picking up people, dropping them off, et cetera, it uses nudges, right? It says things like, well, you may want to go offline, but do you really want to go offline? You might make more money now, right? It can create zones and sort of lure people to the zones by saying, look, you'll make two times as much, et cetera. And these are some efforts by the new managerialism via algorithms to make the sting of being managed to sort of soften it to making it seem more like it's your choice, it's up to you. You decide. You get to decide whether to work or not, how much is enough for you, how much is not. Now, another example of this type of computational governance was just very recently proposed. And the idea was that a lot of people now don't carry around change. So why don't authorities go out and give every homeless person a barcode so that there could be automatic debits to their account if you decide if you want to give to them. And this scheme by a group called Greater Change from Oxford, it can be uh, spun out in a number of directions, right? If you wanted to know the story of the homeless person that you were giving to, you know, they could tell their story to the app and then just as with supply chain management, you might have a code of barcodes for different parts of the supply chain, you could find out what was the story that led this person to be in this difficult situation. And there are many folks who are advocating this type of computational mediation between individuals as a way of improving or making more understandable human social relations. Okay. Another example in terms of human sorting and categorization is one of the IBM is offering to governments that have migrants coming to their borders who might worry. They might say, oh, maybe we want to give this person a chance or maybe we're scared that they're going to be part of a terrorist organization. And so what IBM is saying is, look, you might be overwhelmed by thousands or tens of thousands of persons who are seeking asylum or other forms of classification. Your court system may be not equipped to handle this. You may not want to spend the money on judges. So rather than spending the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars that would be necessary to an adjudication by a person, give us the chance to algorithmically assess the person and give them a score as to how likely we think they will uh, commit crimes or even terrorist acts, or to give them a score to say how likely we, are, we think they are to contribute to society and to uh, pay taxes, find employment, et cetera. Another uh, version of this is being even rolled out by uh, or being proposed by a guy named Palmer Luckey in the US who is behind Oculus Rift, also a big Donald Trump supporter, um, who now has a company that's trying to sell to the U.S. government, to the Department of Homeland Security, a sort of automated facial recognition tool at the border that would recognize some people as being properly near the border and others as not being legitimately on or over the border of the United States, right? And this all gets into this idea behind so much of the algorithmic turn, the algorithmic appeal, that data-driven processing and algorithms allow speed and scale. They allow you to do things very fast, and they allow you to scale what you do over ten, hundreds or tens of thousands of people. Another version of this, and where a lot of this is all rooted in, is in the relatively innocuous idea of the credit score, 
right? And this was itself an algorithmic mathematized turn from looking at people's history of paying back bills to looking at reports on them that summarized and structured the history to ultimately assigning any given credit event in their life either a plus or minus, plus one, plus five, minus one, minus five, et cetera, on some baseline leading them to have a score, right? And so these credit scores, reports, histories, et cetera, these are all part of efforts to algorithmically evaluate people. And they're now being uh, deployed with more and more data, right? So there are people that are saying, oh, you might have a bad credit score based on your repayment history, but if we could just download all that you do on your phone, we might find out that you act in a way that is more like the people that always pay back their bills. And we'll find that that correlation should give you credit, right? So this is another version of the algorithmic turn. It's called inclus in algorithmic inclusivity. That using more data, you can include more people in credit systems than you might once have done so. The ultimate example of this may well be social credit score against China, right? Where there's an effort to boil down into a single score or a single metric many different aspects of a person's behavior. And so, for example, this is not just things like, do you adhere to the law or to traffic rules, things like that. There can be scoring for things like filial piety. This is part of the um, uh, uh, mix. Um, things like academic honesty. Do you pay for public transit or you've been find, found uh, skipping it, et cetera. All of these are examples of versions of, of ranking and rating people bringing in more and more data. Another thing I should mention about the social credit scoring in China is that it is potentially going to lead to a ripple effect in the effects of wrongdoing. So for example, someone that pollutes a river may not be fined very heavily by the environmental agency there, or might well have you know, bribed the environmental agency not to uh, fine them. However, with the ripple effect of social credit scoring, they may find that that misdeed leads them to have to not be able to travel abroad, not to get free access to planes or trains, their children might lose admission to school, they might not have eligibility for government jobs, et cetera, right? And so part of the algorithmic turn here, it's another version of the efficiency idea. It's the idea that uh, the, old, the old saying that the, the emperor is far, right? The state is sort of overwhelmed by dealing with so many people. And this is, in effect, a force multiplier enabling the state to ensure that even if any given agency doesn't have the resources to deter misdeeds, say environmental misdeeds, it could, with proper co cooperation from other agencies, multiply the effect of wrongdoing such that a misdeed in one area leads to consequences in all of these areas, right? Now, in thinking about all of these methods of social control that I've just gone through, or of matching individuals to each other, or of ranking and rating individuals, all of them involve a certain black box process, right? There's an input that is all these different forms of data that are being generated by our cell phones, by surveillance cameras, by all forms of sensors out there, and there are outputs, like these search results, risk scores, threat scores, the social credit blacklists, et cetera. And then there are these entities in the middle that are translating the data into this output, right? And on some level, you may say, well, I'm a bit biased in terms of the, I'm presenting a lot of American and Chinese examples. But I think there's a reason for that in that a lot of these firms, there's a, a way in which data has increasing returns to scale. And the firms that are already big are getting bigger and bigger. And on that basis, a lot of those firms are based in America and China, and they will have lots of power in the rest of the world if they go unregulated. Right? And a lot of the rest of my talk is going to be giving rationales for why they ought to be regulated and why states ought to assert a certain level of sovereignty over the determinations that are made here and not simply accept them as evidence or as authoritative determinations. Here are the three main areas of concern. There, that the data used could be inaccurate and inappropriate, right? We're going to go through ex examples in all of those areas that I just gave where inaccurate data, inappropriate data is used, and why that can lead to real problems, and, and, and why any system that doesn't allow for the understanding and contestation of this data is illegitimate. 
The second is that the algorithmic modeling may be biased or limited. Okay? So there may be real problems with the modeling of what's going on. And in some ways, these algorithmic systems are like law, legal systems. They take a certain set of facts, and based on those facts, they deliver a result. In the legal system, it can be guilty or not guilty. In the social credit scoring system, it might be a score of 600 or 800 or whatever the score might be. And finally, the use of these algorithms is still opaque in so many sectors. In many, many of these areas, we don't understand exactly what's going on, and that's a real problem. So to start here, I'll start with uh, the RoboDebt scandal, which I'm sure many are, are familiar with. And with respect to some of these Centrelink schemes to streamline and to make more automatic the calculation of overpayments in the benefits context, in many of these situations, what they ended up doing is they would have data about a certain period during which someone uh, earned a certain amount of money, and they would extrapolate from that period to a yearly income, right? And there's a scholar at uh, University of Wollongong, uh, Scarlett Wilcock, who's uh, looked at this problem. And the problem is that a lot of folks, especially in today's economy, work in precarious jobs. They don't have the same income from uh, week to week or month to month. And so they would be, have income attributed to them for a time period. And there was an overattribution, and then they were being the, what was really, I think, diabolical about the system is they were forced to substantiate, <laughs> substantiate exactly how much they had earned, et cetera. But some of them found it very difficult to, say, prove a negative. And what I think is also really troubling is I, I just learned today that uh, this system originally was not supposed to be applied to people with a vulnerability flag on them, but now is going to be expanded to them. So even though there are these demonstrated problems with the system, there are still is an expansion of it. And this, I think, is very problematic, not having proper levels of due process and not bringing all the full panoply of public law values into these algorithmic systems. And now to bring in a bit of the legal angle here, since I know we're close to the law school, I think one of the main challenges in this algorithmic turn toward more data-driven determinations is how do you bring in public law values to computational governance, right? When computers start making the decisions, how do we make sure that their people behind them are accountable and actually have to give others due process? Now, another issue, you know, I've, I gave in my earlier part of the talk, I talked about all of the plus sides of Uber, you know, about how easy it makes us, makes it for drivers, for riders to match, and for the drivers to deal with a flexible system. But the flip side of this flexibility is that for many drivers, what Uber had, uh, did is that it would deactivate them, really fire them, if we're going to you know, use, I think, proper nomenclature, but I know that's still legally up in the air, whether the, worker, the drivers are employers, employees or not. But they would deactivate them and say that once you had a score below a certain level, you would be knocked out. Now, why is that problematic? Well, if we look at the American legal scholar Nancy Leong, she has looked extensively at the problems of discrimination that show up in many of these platforms. Um, there actually was a hashtag in the US called Airbnbing while black. It talked about all of these people who are minorities who were looking for uh, rooms, and the room was available, but then suddenly when someone on the other side saw a picture of their face, oh, it suddenly was not available, right? And the worry that you have to have about some of these algorithmic ranking and rating systems is, to what extent does racism play a role sometimes in someone getting a low rating, right? Well, it's hard within the algorithmic system, if it is a purely algorithmic system, there was no space for contestation over that, right? Even in a situation where a rider told a driver, I am giving you a bad score precisely because of these invidious motivations, right? There was no way to contest that originally. Fortunately, there is actually an Uber Drivers Guild now in New York that does create some forms of contestation for the driver to assert themselves, right? And there are other forms of contestation emerging, but I think this is very important that there are all of these different problems and biases that can enter into the data, and we should never just take the data as it is, as given. We should always be able to maintain a critical stance on it, right? And I don't wanna, and I wanna be very clear here, there are certainly problems that are solved by some of these platforms, right? There are, it was not like the past system was perfect, right? It's not like there wasn't racism or other forms of discrimination in the way we used to do things. But the problems of the past should never justify 
a problematic future, right? We can now, it's now easier, I think, to solve these problems or to address them at least than it was in the past, and we should do so. Now, in terms of the scanning the homeless, that raises another question, right? And I think that when we think about the burden of surveillance in society, we should think about the duties both to be watched, but the burdens of being watched, what uh, Mark Andreevich has called the work of being watched, and how that's distributed in society. And I think to the extent that we are encouraging local authorities, municipalities, other entities to continually watch and disseminate information about individuals who are causing some sort of social externality, we should be very open about the extent to which that is being, uh, that sort of surveillance is done. And I recently wrote a piece for this uh, book called Big Data Crime and Social Control where I talked about white collar crime, right? Who is scanning the white collar criminals or the potential white collar criminals? <laughs> and so I think that this is a, an issue, but I also wanna highlight that you know, this question of expanding surveillance, there's a certain way in which that can just go too far. And so this is very, uh, so if we worry about over-expanding surveillance, we may want to worry about even starting that logic of expansion in the first place. Now, with respect to the refugee example that I gave, the refugee or terrorist uh, algorithm or other efforts to process asylum seekers, this is an area where I think in the United States, there have been so many problems that before US companies are allowed to bring that technology abroad, any other uh, entity, government, others who want to use that technology should look into the problems. And one of those is what the scholar Margaret Hu calls big data blacklisting, where we have these lists, a no-fly list, a no-work list, a no-voting list, where people can be blackballed and not even understand that they are on the list or why they're on the list, at least at the beginning stages of these lists. And even though there have been efforts to remediate it, it still is very difficult for people to understand why they've been put on certain lists, who they go to to stop being on the list. For example, there was a database infrastructure in the United States that was called part of the information sharing environment. They were called fusion centers. And they were designed to fuse together information from the federal, state, and local level and from public and private sector actors and bring together 360-degree databases about entries about individuals, okay? The problem with these fusion centers, though, and there were about 72 of them at last count, um, was that data would automatically populate about people that were persons of interest, people about whom suspicious activity reports had been submitted. But when it was corrected, you had to go individually to each fusion center, right? And that's a deep problem with database structure. If you create a database where you can automatically disseminate warning signals about individuals, but then to correct it, you have to go individually to each of them and go through some long process, that's really a problem. And part of the work I've been doing in the U.S. with both uh, you know, advocacy with respect to health records, with respect to consumer records, et cetera, is to ensure that for every bit of data that's out there about a person that could potentially stigmatize them, we know where it comes from, where it's going to, and that the dissemination of the data, and that the erasure of the data or the correction of the data is just as easy as the dissemination of the data, right? And I tell a story about someone named, uh, uh, oh, it was Catherine Taylor, who was um, uh, blackballed as a meth addict in one of these databases, or as a meth dealer, as someone who had dealt uh, crystal meth, the drug dealer. And she found that a data broker, a private data broker had this information, was spreading it to all of these different uh, databases that were about consumer credit, employment, other things. And she didn't even find out the information was out there about her until she had been denied for a job, denied credit for a dishwasher, denied a tenancy, et cetera. And then just went through this months-long, in fact, years-long process of trying to correct. The first, the first like 30 or so entities that had the data, she took a few months to correct with, but some took years to correct with. And this is a deep fault of database structures. And I think it's something that, you know, we've really messed up in the United States, and I hope that other jurisdictions can do a better job with it. Uh, also, from the legal perspective, what Margaret Hu says is that, she says when government uses this stuff, she actually makes a substantive due process against argument against it. And what that means is that it's not just about adding procedures, that she would just block the use of some of these databases. And I think it's important to bring 
that as a possible uh, solution as well. Now, thinking about credit scores, I mentioned earlier algorithmic inclusion, which was trying to help people who say are on the basis of baseline data are not able to get a loan because say they have, don't have proper, uh, that they, there's not enough data here, et cetera. And these are people that are algorithmically included when say their social media activity, location data, web tracking, shopping habits, when all of those are included, that they are um, under different scoring models allowed credit, right? The dark side of this algorithmic inclusion is something that the scholar Leslie Jones calls predatory inclusion, okay? And they, these different scholars have developed models of people being included but being given, say, loans at really high interest rates, right? Or being given loans on very bad terms. And we're finding that in Kenya, which is where a lot of these fringe models have been uh, pioneered, that there are people that were locked out of the traditional system but at least didn't have any derogatory information about them, right? They, they had, they were sort of a, a thin credit file or it was blank. But then when they are given credit, often very small amounts, on the basis of the fringe scoring models, that they default, and then that default becomes part of the formal record, and they're worse off than when they started, right? And we just don't have enough empirical data, I think, to really put a lot of trust in rapid dissemination of these fringe models. We have to go back, I think, to a model of experimenting with them, thinking of them almost as human subjects research, right? And when we do human subjects research, we have protections for people that are involved. And in some of these contexts, before we deploy uh, more ambitious uses of data in these algorithmic contexts, I think we have to be aware of ways of sandboxing them, testing them out, rather than just uh, massively scaling them. This is a humorous example, or perhaps a very darkly humorous example, that's imagined by Susie Cagle about the possible implications of a Facebook uh, patent which scores people on the basis of their friends' scores, right? So there is good data out there that says if you are someone that has lots of friends with a good credit score, you are someone who will probably also repay and is more likely to repay than someone else with your exact score, right? that the power or the influence of friends is so great. I want to say that it's just, this is a correlation. You know, there are lots of controversy over these models. There's a guy named Christakis, I believe, in the United States who's done models that say that someone with too many overweight friends tends to become overweight, you know, et cetera. So there's a lot of contestation of this network science, but let's assume for now that it's accurate and that it is a true correlation. Well, it's not too hard to imagine that just a few steps beyond the implementation of that model people start feeling like, how do I control my fate in this new algorithmically determined future? Well, if I'm having trouble getting credit, maybe I should drop my friendship connections to people that have low credit scores, right? And this type of sorting of individuals is one of the main reasons why it is always dangerous to deploy natural science methods on human beings, right? Because when you engineer a bridge, the molecules in the bridge are not going to act differently based on knowing your engineering model to subvert or um, uh, uh, get around uh, what you've done. But when you try to socially engineer people, people are always more creative, right? People are always gonna try to find ways around to hack the system, to do things around the system. And so you've always gotta be really careful about what are the second and third and fourth order effects. And in this respect, my message is a quite Hayekian one, right? Because if there's one message of Friedrich Hayek, it's that we don't really understand all of the implications of the social engineering that is done. But when Hayek was writing, the big uh, social engineer of his time was the state, right? In the 40s and 50s, that's what he was always worried about. But we're now in a situation where these firms are so large, they're taking on state-level functions. Uber is essentially the functional sovereign of rides in much of the world, or there's uh, Didi and, and another, it's analogs in, in a few other countries. And so when you have these type of functional sovereigns, they are essentially socially engineering things. And we have to be careful about all of the second and third order effects that the people at Mountain View, Palo Alto, um, uh, other, other cities are not going to understand. I think this is also a problem with social credit, right? In terms of the social credit system, because Thinking back to that example I gave from Facebook, the 
there's been some talk, and I know that this has not been verified yet, but there's been talk that in the social credit system in China, it could be a version of the system would not only implement, in, include people's political activity in their scores, but could also, at once another step removed, include the activity and scoring of their friends as part of an individual score. And the third step of, of remove would be to inform someone that their score had gone down on the basis of their friend's dissident activity, right? So if you think about that and the degree of granularity of that social control, and what's ironic is that, you know, there were Chinese emperors uh, hundreds of years ago that actually had models of surveillance and reporting in individual villages where there were people that were supposed to report back to the center about what was going on in the village and if there was proper uh, respect paid to the central authority at that time. It really is a sort of feudalistic model of imposing social control. It's quite a, a troubling model of social control. And I think that the worry is that this goes beyond social credit to something I would call eusocial credit, which is sort of a modeling of human beings as you see in some, like, like with bees, you know, eusocial uh, animals. The, a level of control that goes not merely to what are individuals doing, but are they watching their fellows to make sure that all of their fellows are acting in exactly the right way, and if not, imposing penalties on them or dissociating themselves with them, or, or uh, uh, ostracizing them. And ironically, you know, the person who kind of pioneered that idea was Bernard de Mandeville with The Fable of the Bees, which is often seen as a major justification of how markets work, right? And I think that we really have to watch, you know, how are these new forms of credit scoring in many places? And I would say that the U.S. has versions of eusocial credit as well. How are they trying, uh, taking away people's ability to act freely? And how are they imposing forms of social control that really go beyond what any authority, no matter how wise or legitimate, should be doing? So what's next? What's next in terms of what we do as a result of the problems and threats of these algorithmic social orderings? Well, I think one point of inspiration is the European approach to combining their understanding and their regulation of data and privacy policy, and competition policy. Because I think part of what the threat is in all of the scenarios I've, I've brought up, they're not as threatening if there are many versions of the service out there, right? If there are lots of different ride services, if there's lots of different room letting services, if there's a ton of search engines and social networks, who cares if one stigmatizes you or ostracizes you or lowers your life chances? You can always find another one. But if there's only a few companies that are doing each of these crucial functions, or one company that becomes monopolized, then, again, that company is sort of a functional sovereign. And its data use should be subject to the same types of strictures and public values that we ideally impose on governments. And it goes without saying that a lot of the things when I brought them up in a governmental context, that they should be that we should worry about governments doing this type of algorithmic sorting and ranking without public accountability. Going down to the personal level, this means a right to erasure, a right of data access, a right to be forgotten, a right to explanation. All of those are very important rights in the digital age, right? And I'll go into a little bit more explanation of each of these. And on the personal level, we have to make sure not only that these are out in the law, the law is just one step. We have to make sure that these are actually part of the code, right? Because if there's one thing I continually have heard from government actors, from corporate actors in the US when I try to bring up these types of basic public law values, it's that we can't code for it, or that'd be too expensive, or it's not built into the system, et cetera. But with foresight, you can build this into the system. And you can create jobs for people to do it, right? You create jobs both inside the tech sector and without it. And that's why I really, I, I applaud Margaret Vestager and others in the European Commission, different directorates general, for having a really visionary approach here. The other is that to combine this theme of competition law and data protection, there is something called the Freedom from Facebook campaign led by the Open Markets Institute. And they say, you know, it's, it's really strange to have one company owning Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram, right? You could even go within those companies and say, wow, why does Facebook both like have a control over this news feed, and it's the place where I keep in touch with all my friends and I see all of their pictures. Why not split those things apart, right? I mean, that's something that Masej Szyglowski has proposed, and he's compared it to the separation of banking and commerce or the separation of commercial and investment banking, 
right? There's so many models in history of people recognizing vast, overweening corporate power and saying we could structure it otherwise. And one of the things I look at in my book in the Black Box Society is I, I reproduce part of a letter from a young software developer who really bought into capitalism, <laughs> bought into the market, wanted to have a startup. And then he found out that basically he was getting a message from Facebook that either they were going to buy his app or they were essentially going to cut off access of all of their users to his app, right? It's, uh, and, and that's a pretty tough thing. And he writes this letter saying, look, I bought into the system, but now it's just this one giant company that's preventing me from reaching my market. Um, Jonathan Tepper, this hedge fund manager, has an article call out called The Myth of Competition, or has a big book out called The Myth of Competition, looking at this consolidation. And I think we have to realize that essentially with these firms, if you don't split them up, or if you don't have other regulatory things like inter interoperability mandate, you're going to have an increasing concentration of power in these very large firms, and that's a very troubling thing. And a lot of, uh, and, and you might wonder, you know, if you can carry your phone number from carrier to carrier, why not carry a profile from social network to social network, have federations of social networks? There's lots of people trying to think of creative solutions to these types of problems, right? Now, another thing that I think is critical is that we need a political economy of technology. And I know that my, my host, Professor Bravini, has done you know, a lot of work in the communications and political economy field. And with law and political economy, we're trying to bring in that perspective and to talk a lot about how you can have some forms of state intervention that are going to try to um, uh, limit. And when I talk about the state here, I'm not necessarily talking about the US or Chinese state, right? I'm talking about states outside of the US and China who are going to be able to take on a role of, at the very least, ensuring that some form of public values are respected um, by some of these large firms. I think if we do nothing, you know, I, I have been working from this black box metaphor for a while, right? That you're going to have, that the problem is that this opacity of our data being translated into decisions and scores about us by uh, large firms. But, you know, over the past three years, and this is not just because of the uh, ongoing political disaster in the United States, but for, for many reasons, I, I, I think the better metaphor now is black hole. And what I mean by that is that there is just so much pressure by some very large, both government and corporate entities, to gather so much data. And that this is sort of drawing in so much information about us and that they create what Nicole DeWandre calls the social hypergravity, which is the sense that everything you do matters, that everything is being monitored, that everything goes into some permanent record and is scored. And that's something that I want to try to fight back against. Now, just a few more examples here is, you know, I talked earlier about the right to be forgotten. And I want to be clear that there are sometimes, there, there are, when you bring in public values, there can be conflicts among values. So, for example, with the right to be forgotten and algorithmic orderings of name search queries, there are privacy interests, right? And these are recognized by the European Union as when personal information is inaccurate, inadequate, irrelevant, or excessive, it should be removed from a search result. So if you search for my name and then there's something about me that's either a lie or that is sort of excessively focusing on some aspect of my personal life or something like that, there's a potential to get it removed. But on the other hand, what the Court of Justice, the European Union has said, is that there's an exception where they don't delist results where if the data subjects play a role in public life, and there's an interest of the public in having access to information about them. Now, a lot of folks that work in computer science and algorithms say, these are hopelessly vague concepts. How would we ever operationalize them? My first answer is, no, you won't be the person's operationalizing them. Actually, it's part of having social science expertise, legal expertise, journalistic expertise. All these different sectors have to come in when we are thinking about how to operationalize things like the right to be forgotten. But to move on, when you look at how cases have been done, and this is where I give enormous credit to uh, Julia Powells, who's done just such great research in so many areas, so many areas of this field, but particularly uh, for tonight with respect to the right to be forgotten, she's gone through with fellow researchers to look at different cases. And for example, with respect to this in Europe, a victim of physical assault asked for results describing the assault to be removed from queries against her name, right? So this is somebody who has you know, already suffered this grievous uh, uh, harm of being assaulted. And who said, I don't want to have to revisit that every time I search my name on Google. 
And moreover, I don't want every future employer to be making some sort of inference about me on the basis of a physical assault, assault against me, right? There's another incredibly moving story of a woman whose husband was murdered in 1995. And they said, every time my name is searched, it, the stories come up about that, and I don't want that to be the first thing everyone thinks about me for the rest of my life, right? But on the other hand, with respect to this public interest point, you know, someone who was a pedophile who wanted the links to articles about his conviction removed, that was not delisted by Google, and that person was not able to get relief in court. I think for good reason. But just to add another layer of complexity here, there was a Japanese court that heard the exact same issue, the exact same cause of action, or something very similar to that, um, uh, with respect to uh, abusive materials, exploitative materials. The first two courts in Japan to hear the case said that that person should get a right to a delisting after a certain period of years. But the highest court said, no, that is, uh, we're not going to give that right to be forgotten to that person. And I think part of what that process shows is reasonable people are going to disagree. And that as algorithmic governance goes forward and covers more and more spheres of life, we have to create room for that contestation. We shouldn't simply say, there's one rule, and that's it, and forget about it, right? We need to create room for contestation. And in all of these examples, you know, there are many examples where you could think of things going either way, and part of being able to govern our new algorithmic society is creating space for this type of um, uh, space for public values to inform what's going on. The divide, by the way, and here's another example that I think is kind of interesting is, one of the other examples here is who has a big role in public life, right? Who is someone that you're just going to allow anything to be up there because they're a big public figure and who is not? Well, you could say that if you wanted to make accountability more algorithmic, you could just decide it by saying, how many Twitter followers do they have? Once you have over 5,000 followers, you're a public figure, right? Or you could use clout scores. Like this was, a, uh, this was used for a while. Clout would create a score based on your entire social media presence. So uh, at the time, Barack Obama beat Justin Bieber, but I think Bieber is now beating Obama. Um, <laughs> but you, know, you could use these sort of algorithmic systems, but I think, again, they, they should only be one source of evidence in the determination of, say, who has a role in public life and who does not, right? They shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. And that's where you're going to make, say, more case-by-case -case process of deliberation on the totality of interest in a case, right? Of what, who's a public figure, who's not. Um, I'll go through this very quickly um, with respect to corporate experimentation. You might have heard a few years ago about Facebook's emotional manipulation experiment, right? Where they essentially, what they did for certain people, they would add more happy news and happy words to your feed. And then for other people, they would add more sad news and sad words. And they were trying to figure out if changing someone's feed would make them happier or sadder. Now, how they determined that was rather crude. They just sort of looked at how many happy or sad words you used yourself, right, later on. So I think you could be a rather happy person and write lots of sad things. Um, who knows? Um, <laughs> and this is, you know, should, should give us some uh, suspicion of a lot of these algorithmic methods of sentiment analysis. But in any event, you know, they did that, and, and it led to a lot of concern among individuals about, hey, are we just guinea pigs of these large corporations? Do we deserve some right to know before that happens? Now, what also happened is OkCupid, they decided to have an experiment where rather they're a dating site, and rather than matching people to the people that the algorithm predicted would be their best matches, they took a group of people and matched them to their worst matches. Okay. They said, hey, let's see what happens. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe our algorithm is bad, right? <laughs> and um, it, what's strange is, you know, the person behind it, Christian Rudder, said, you know, hey, everyone's saying it's terrible that we experiment on human beings. Everybody does it, you know? It's like, that's just part of the social contract here is there is no contract, right? It's like we are the, essentially the feudal rulers of this space, and we're going to decide. Um, and maybe sometimes we'll experiment, and that's just a risk that you're assuming, right? Now, some people would say, well, you sign the contract, you assume the risk, right? But there are laws that govern these sorts of things. So in my state, in uh, Maryland, back in the U.S., Maryland is the only state that actually extends human subject research protections beyond federally funded research, okay? So 49 states say that, by and large, human subjects research uh, you have to follow certain federal rules if you accept federal money. OK, Cuba doesn't accept federal money. But in Maryland, there actually are laws that say 
that there are some basic protections, right? And I apologize, this is brief, but this is all online. My, my colleagues, uh, my former colleague James Grimmelman, Leslie Meltzer-Henry, respectively experts in algorithmic, uh, algorithms and law and uh, bioethics and human subjects research, incredibly lucky to have these two experts right next to me down the hall. They protested and they said, look, Attorney General of Maryland, you should go after this, you should investigate this. And they also wrote, and then they got a response that was pretty lackluster, you know, saying, yeah, we'll think about it, you know. Um, but there are, there is role, even in sort of the wild west of the United States, there are people that are out there looking at these different methods and saying, maybe they're unfair. Maybe they're treating consumers in a way that is not the way that people ought to be treated in a society where everyone's dignity is respected, okay? I think also another version of this is Tinder's desirability algorithm, right? They have a certain algorithm that the company has developed uh, on their uh, website, or I, I mean, with, within their app. And one of the concerns that came up with the desirability algorithm is who's developing the, desire, desirability, the desirability algorithm, right? And it turned out that this was largely being dominated. It was a very, uh, like a lot of computer science, and uh, it was being driven by lots of men, right? So the question is, well, should women get more input into it, right? How do you include a more inclusive process when this is an app that's really quite important? Of course, there are market solutions, right? You might have apps that are developed by women, and that might be another way of solving the problem. But when you have these two-sided markets, it's a situation where it's hard to move people. It's hard to compete. So again, if we want to make accountability more algorithmic, maybe we just add new consent procedures and just add more information about it, and you know, we let people know more about the nature of the development of the algorithm, et cetera. But if we want to make the users of the algorithms more accountable, perhaps we try to develop some level of independent advising, develop more diversity in the corporate governance of these algorithms. Now, some parting thoughts uh, tonight are that, I know I'm running out of time, and I want to get, leave some question, time for questions, is I have been tried tonight to develop a way of thinking about algorithms that would provide some basic norms of due process, respect, and dignity for those of us who are subject to algorithmic classification. And that's one reason I was really thrilled to see the Black Box book translated uh, into Mandarin, because I wanna see these sort of ideas uh, to, see a, to try to develop and to start a global conversation about these apps which grow worldwide. How do you bring in the views of people that say are not in the country that is where the app is located, where most of its workers are, where it's incorporated, et cetera. And I, I developed that and some more ideas in this idea of rule of persons, not machines, which is a more updated version of the book or some ideas in the book. And I think part of that is going to be how do we develop new institutions? And my parting thoughts tonight will be that, you know, at this university, I'm thrilled to have this talk bringing together and sponsored by people from computer science, communications, and law. And I think the future of making these systems more accountable is going to hinge on whether we can bring in people from all of these different disciplines, get them to talk to each other, have us respect one another as we govern these entities and as we work in the future to ensure that algorithms are not just serving a narrow corporate interest, a narrow government interest, but a broader public interest. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.